If you have your Bibles, please open to Nahum chapter 3. Nahum chapter 3 is going to be the text for us this morning. Nahum chapter 3. I'm going to start by reading the entire chapter for us so that we can know what the text has to say and also know where we're going to go with the rest of the message. Nahum chapter 3. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Nahum chapter 3 verse 1. Woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots, horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses, and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies, all because of the many harlotries of the harlots, charming one, the mistress of the sorcerers, who sells nations by her harlots and families by her sorceries. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face and show to the nations your nakedness and to the kingdoms your disgrace. I will throw filth on you and make you vile and set you up as a spectacle. And it will come about that all who see you will shrink from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will grieve for her? Where will I seek comforters for you? Are you better than Thebes, which was situated by the waters of the Nile, with waters surrounding her with ramparts was a sea, whose wall consisted of the sea? Ethiopia was her might, and Egypt too, without limits. Put and Lubim were among her helpers, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity, and all and, and also her small children were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her honorable men, and all her great men were bound with fetters. You too will become drunk. You will be hidden. You too will search for a refuge from the enemy. All your fortifications are fig trees with ripe fruits. When shaken, they fall into the eater's mouth. Behold, your people are women in the midst. the, The gates of your land are open wide to your enemies. Fire consumes your gate bars. Draw out for yourself waters for the siege. Strengthen your fortification. Go into the clay and tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. It will consume you as the locust does. Multiply yourself like the creeping locust. Multiply yourself like the swarming locust. You have increased your traders more than the stars of heaven. The creeping locust strips and flies away. Your guardsmen are like the swarming locusts. Your marshals like the hordes of grasshoppers settling in the stone wall on a cold day. The sun rises and they flee, and the place where they are is not known. Your shepherds are sleeping, O king of this area. Your nobles are lying down. Your people are scattered on the mountains, and there's no one to regather them. There's no relief for your breakdown, your wounds is incurable. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you. For on whom has not your evil passed continually? 
Lord, we're thankful for your word. We're grateful that we have this privilege to just come week after week to study deeply of your word, and we ask that you can be with us this morning. <clears throat> Give us attentiveness. Allow us to see what we need to learn, not what other people need to learn. May you open our hearts to your word and be, allow us to be humble so that we can faithfully honor you with our lives. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. There are things in life that will offend you greatly if people did not take their profession seriously. Imagine, if you will, if you were going in for surgery and your surgeon is talking to you about what, uh, what the surgery is going to be about, but you notice that the surgeon is kind of awkward and strange. He begins to explain to you what's going to happen, but he does so in a really strange way. He starts chuckling and giggling about things that he shouldn't be laughing about. You'll notice that uh, when you ask him certain questions, they're, they're not clear and they're vague. You'll notice even when you look into over his hand, you see the file, that the name on that file is not even your file. How would you respond to that? What would your, what would your thoughts be? This, you probably, one of the thoughts would be that this guy probably isn't taking his job seriously, so I need to find someone else. That's a wise thing to do. Or if you were, let's say, your house was on fire, and you called the firefighter, and all of a sudden the firefighter comes, and they start asking you questions like, where is the fire hydrant? And when you find this fire hydrant, how do you use the fire hydrant? You think to yourself, that's your job. You're supposed to know how to do this. And they start asking more questions like, is this the right address? Oh, no, sorry, this is the wrong place. i got to go. And then they, they take off. You think to yourself, this is absurd. This, is, this, this lack of competence and, and the fire department will make you not take firefighters seriously. Now, if something like this happened, you would just hope that people like this would just give up on their job. Just They should just quit because they defame the, the title that they're in or the job as a whole. It would be better if they just quit altogether. Now, I want to direct this thought towards you, church. If you call yourself a Christian and you yourself is unclear about the gospel, if you yourself is giggle and laugh at the things that God scoffs at, if there's no reverence in your lifestyle, if you lack, if there's a difference in your lifestyle, if you lack reverence, you lack fear, you lack love and respect or honor to the Lord, what is the point of calling yourself a Christian? It would be better if you leave the faith altogether than to disgrace the name of God. We understand that the, there are things in life that if you do not take seriously will have ramifications in your life. Whether it's doing something like driving a car or being a doctor or a firefighter or whatever, there are certain things that can have potential threat to your life and to others as well. But of all things in life that we need to take seriously, we must take God and his word seriously. If you ever wonder why you keep falling to the same pattern of sin, it is because you do not take God seriously. If you ever wonder why your marriage is so bad and why you're always mistreating your spouse, it's because you do not take God seriously. If you ever wonder why you don't raise your kids the way the Bible instructs us to, it's because you do not take God seriously. If you ever wonder why people around you do not take Christianity seriously, when they look at your life, it's because you do not take Christianity seriously. So how do I know if I take God seriously? Or even the inverse, how do I know if I'm not taking God seriously? 
If I were to evaluate my own walk, what are the signs in my life that shows me that I do not take God seriously? For our outline this morning, I'm going to ask us three questions. Three questions for us to think about uh, if we take God's word seriously. First one is this. Do I take God's judgment seriously? Do I take God's judgment seriously? For those of you that are new, uh, those of you uh, is the first time here, we welcome you, but I just want to kind of give us a summary of what's going on so far. The book of Nahum is the sequel to the book of Jonah, and we're, we're familiar with that book. That's the book where there's a man that's called by God to go to the city called Nineveh, and he chooses not to, and he gets swallowed by the whale out of punishment for his disobedience. God brings him out of it, he declares his message, the entire city repents. About a hundred years later, the same group of people, uh, so the, the audience here is probably the grandkids of, of Jonah's time, they went back to their sin. They decided to go back and live the, uh, the life that God is against, and Nahum is sent to be this messenger. Nahum means comforter. Uh, what, what makes this message a message of comfort is because God is speaking uh, through Nahum to the Israelites as well as the Ninevites. The, the Israelites were being oppressed by the Ninevites. They were people that were afflicted by these Ninevites. And God is telling them through this book that their sin will be punished. The Ninevites' sin, all the sin, all the atrocity that they have committed will be punished. This is why he's known as a comfort. And in all three chapters, it's like a little poem. And each of them are supposed to explain what God is going to do. And we know through history that 15 years after this book was written, that God's word came, came true, exactly the way that's written here. So that's the background of this book. Verse 1. Woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. The beginning of this passage begins with a warning to the city of blood. Uh, the city is known for their violence. <laughs> it is known for their violence, and not just this is not just a city that's filled with violence, but it's also filled with pillagers or people that would go into a city they would just uh, destroy and take everything out. They're like a bunch of bandits or raiders, uh, and they go and kill and take all the possessions of the land. These people are filled with liars. Every time their citizens open their mouth, even if it sounds convincing, even if it sounds straightforward, the undercurrent of all that they have to say is twisted, is filled with hidden motives, and is manipulative. Everything that they say is a lie. And they're known as the people that are filled with lies. And God hates liars. The Ninevites did not care. They did whatever they want because they have no respect for God. They forgot that man is made in the image of God and it should be. And there's a, there's a decency that, that people need to treat another. And these people chose not to. They went back to their violent ways. They went back to their killing, their stealing, their slanders, and all of their lies. This verse ends with this phrase, her prey never departs. There's seemingly no end. And it's implied in the language here that the Ninevites would literally tear people limb from limb. That's just how violent they were. There's this historical evidence that talks about how the Ninevites would have this banquet hall. And within this banquet hall, there would be this tree. And in this tree, there would be severed heads of those that they've conquered. There would be people there, and there's this, if you imagine just eating, you just look around, you see this tree just decorated with people's heads. 
And the reason why that is is because if you're visiting that nation, if you're visiting that city, and you're having a meal with them, you look at that and you'll be intimidated by it. This will make you think, wow, these people are no joke. They will kill and then they will just display what they've done. At the same time, if you are a citizen of Nineveh, you'll look at this tree and you'll, and you'll look at it with, with reverence and awe because you think about, oh, look how great our nation is. Look at all the people that we've killed. This is how wicked and evil they are. These people were violent people. This is why they're called a bloody city. Verse 2. The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots, horsemen, charging, swords, flashing, spears, gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses, and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies. This verse begins to describe the sound of those that will pillage and raid the Ninevites. There's a switch and of attention between talking to Nineveh and then talking about what's going to happen to Nineveh. Here's this vision of the sound of the Babylonians that will that will go in and attack this nation. There's this role reversal here. At the end of verse 1, they talk about how they tear people into pieces and it seems like their prey never ends. But at the end of verse 3, the corpses in Nineveh, of the citizens in Nineveh, will seem like it's numerous. This word corpse or, or, or dead body show up three times in verse 3 and it's to show emphasis that there will be a whole bunch of dead people when the Babylonians come, there seems to be an end. To, there seems to be no end to the body count in Nineveh after Babylonians are done with them. Verse four: All because of the many harlotries of harlot, the charming one, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. The Holy Spirit-inspired insult is designed to show the reality of their depravity, and God will show you how wicked you are. This picture here is, is really crude language, this harlots, harlotries of harlots, to show that the, these people would use sexual acts to manipulate other nations so that they can fall. And we understand uh, this is not new. In, in the present time and in back then in the Old Testament, people would try to manipulate using sexual acts. When you think of Baal and Asheroth, these are all these false gods that say, if you want their god to act, you need to commit all of these sexual acts. And the people in Nineveh, that's what they did. They used it to lure people to their side and then they'll betray them. There's nothing that this nation would not do in order to get their way. This nation would use their allurement to draw victims in and then they will destroy them. They tempt them, they appeal them to their sexual lusts and desires, and then in the end, they get destroyed. This is what Proverbs 7 talks about, right? The warning against the harlot is that if you go into the way of the harlot, if you follow those that are in sexual sin, it will be like animal that's going to go to be slaughtered. And that's what the Ninevites did back then. They would lure people in and they would kill them. Verse 5. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face and show to the nations your nakedness and to the kingdoms your disgrace. God, <coughs> excuse me, God himself will do this and he is going to go against the nations. Is not an angel of the Lord or, or, another, uh, or any other divine deity, but is only God himself. God will deal with the Ninevites. God will show not just them, but other nations, just his own power. We understand if, if you've ever seen someone that have to go to court, they get served with their papers. 
on the papers explain their offense and why they need to show up to court and, and, um, and what they're going to have to discuss. It's like a warning and say, hey, this is what's going to happen. And this is what's going on in this passage. God is sending them a message and he's warning them of what will happen if they do not repent because their sin is exposed. God never get, goes without warning or explaining what he is going to do. He gives opportunity for people to be saved. Now, I wonder if some of you are like this. You've come to church week after week, months after months, years after years, and you've heard the warnings of God's word, and yet you still have your heart turned against him. You understand that every single time when you hear the gospel preached, it is God warning you and pricking you to turn from your sin, to humble your heart and place your faith in him. We are in a time where you cannot say that, though I don't know. You know, we have all this technology, have all these different ways for us to learn and hear the gospel, and we are without excuse. And, that, and if that is you today, if you, this is the, I don't know how many times you've come to this church, how many times you've visited this church, if you have not given your life to Christ, you need to do that today. Verse 6, I will throw filth on you and make you vile and set you up as a spectacle. They used to use these corpses as a, as a trophy to show off their strength, now they will it'll be done to them in the same way. This is used to expose and embarrass them for their weakness. Verse 7, And it will come about that all who see you will shrink from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will grieve for her? Where will I seek comforters for you? People who see this will stand and will be, dis- it will be disturbed that they are destroyed. The Ninevites used to strike fear into others, but after what's going to be done to them, the people that are watching will be placed in a state of fear and awe because of how bad they will be destroyed. Their opposition of others will lead them to this fate. All nations agree that their judgment is long overdue. Hell, is a, in, in reality, is a judgment onto sinners that are way overdue. You understand that Throughout this book, the Ninevites chose not to take God's judgment seriously. Imagine if the Ninevites read this after, Ninevite, after Nahum wrote it. They probably thought to themselves, that's not going to happen. I don't need to. This is just a joke. This is, now, I don't need to take this seriously. All these things, it's not going to happen because of all of our defenses, because of all of our strength, because of all the things that we've acquired. But we know that these people, although they didn't take God's judgment seriously, it did happen regardless. I wonder if that is some of you today who are listening and is, and is not taking God's judgment seriously. It is very easy for us to dismiss it. And one way you dismiss the judgment of God is the way that you dismiss sin. The way that you view God shows you yourself and how you view the word of God. If we understand the reality, the ramification, the result of our sin... It should make us turn from our sin because we know how damaging our sin is. We are prone to want to hide and coddle our sin in hopes that no one finds out. When I was in middle school, before I became a Christian, I would get in trouble a lot. And one particular morning, I got called into the office. And as I was walking to the office, I thought, oh man, did, he, did they find out? Did they find out this one, this one, or this one? And when I got into the office, the principal did this almost like a Jedi mind trick. He looked at me and I was like, Raymond, I know what you did. You might as well just tell me. And I was like, 
And I was like, I don't know what, what triggered me. I was like, fine, you want me to tell you? Fine, I'll tell you. Yes, I did throw that ice cream on that kid's back. But I did it because some other kid paid me. And I'm not going to tell you who that kid is because snitches get stitches. <laughs> and if you already know what I did, yes, I did write that about you because you do need to lose weight. And I started confessing all of these things to him. And he looked at me like, no, the only reason why I called you in here is because I want to know why do you have all these tardy passes. <laughs> then I was like, oh, okay, it's because I overslept. You can imagine that that evening was a, I had a long discussion with my parents. Now I wonder if someone came up to you and asked this question. Imagine if an elder, pastor, small group leader, Bible study leader, your friends, your spouse, if they came up to you and said, I know what you did. You might as well just explain it. I know what you did. What would would come to your mind? Would you think to yourself, would there be confusion? Would you think, well, maybe... I don't know what you're saying. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. What did I do? Or would you be convicted and ask, how did you know? If you are hiding your sin, you'll be convicted. But if you're innocent, you wouldn't understand why someone would ask you this question. If you try to cover your sin, God will eventually expose your sin. But if you repent and uncover your sin before the Lord, then God will cover it. Numbers 32, 23, your sins will find you out. Psalm chapter 90, verse 8, you have placed our iniquities before you. Our secret sins is in the in light of your presence. God takes your sin more seriously than you would like to admit. How you handle sin reveals how you view God's judgment. If you take God's judgment seriously, you will take sin seriously. This is what's going on with the, with the people of Nineveh. Nahum tells them and exposes the sin that God sees in the dark and in public, and they chose not to do anything about it. So ask yourself, do I take God's judgment seriously? Not only do you need to ask that question, but the next question to see if you take God seriously is, do I rely on my own ability? First, do I, do I take God's judgment seriously? Second, do I rely on my own ability? Verse 8. Are you better than Thebes, which was situated by the waters of the Niles, with waters surrounding her, whose rampart was the sea, whose walls consisted of the sea? Nineveh had this had this moat around it. Remember in the last few weeks or months when I described Nineveh, they had this huge moat and these walls, these huge walls that they thought would protect them. And they had all of this, but then they also were reminded of this place called Thebes. And in, in the NAS is, is no Amon, but I like the word Thebes because it just sounds easier. It's easier to say and it sounds kind of cool. Thebes was this capital city of Egypt and, and it's a legendary city in the eyes of the Ninevites because they were protected by the Nile. They had this natural defense around them and it's familiar to them. So they were, so, you know, these Assyrians, they actually took over Thebes in 663. So when, when Nahum is pointing this out, it's making them recall something that they did to another nation. This was a memorable event to the Ninevites. Both of, the, both of these cities only stand because God allows it. And Nineveh and Thebes were both very similar. And can Nineveh actually boast that, is, that, what, that what they have is better in respect to the situation? Remember, Thebes had the entire Nile River 
They had this huge natural defense system. And it's better than any moats, better than any of these walls that they, that they made. If Nineveh thought that their defense is better, then the Nile, then the Ninevites are in denial. The Lord and his sovereign ability can destroy any place regardless of, their, of whether it's natural defenses or man-made defenses. Then what, is, what hope is there for us to rely on our own strength? To rely on our own abilities. Look, you can have the best health care in the world, but yet the Lord can remove your health immediately. You can have all the money stored up in your bank account and the Lord can make you poverty into poverty overnight. You can have all of these high-tech securities to watch over your homes and God can remove those safety nets. Now, I'm not saying these things are bad, but I am saying that you cannot depend on these things as your savior. First nine, Ethiopia was her might and Egypt too without limits. Put and Lubim were among her helpers. All these different locations were protected by nature, but they were all destroyed. All four of these places had tremendous amount of strength and power, and they were better than Nineveh in every way, but they were destroyed. Verse 10, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity, and all her small children were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her honorable men, and all her great men were bound with fetters. It's just, this is just the reality, recalling the, this, this event in Thebes with vividness. The Egyptians were, were, their children were dashed to pieces by the Assyrians. And then these Ninevites also did the same thing to the Israelites. The Ninevites did this to everyone that they came across, and they did this to show their dominance. But yet, look at verse 11. You too will become drunk. You will be hidden, and you too will search for refuge from the enemy. This, they will be seen as this drunken group of people just stammering and staggering around. They're going to be running for dear life and even will run to their enemies, but their enemies will not give them any shelter. In other words, even when they surrender, they will not find any comfort. Verse 12, all your fortifications are figs, are fig trees with ripe fruit. When shaken, they fall into the eater's mouth. Fig trees, like other trees, when they're ripe, becomes easy to, to pluck. It is easy to fall. The point Nahum is trying to get at here is Nineveh is ready to, to, to be destroyed. They're going to be destroyed. It will not take much effort to do so. Verse 13, Behold, your people are women in your midst. The gates of your land are open wide, open to your enemy. This is a, another taunt. They are proud at one point, but they will be humble to the point where they fight like women. Again, this isn't, don't think of it as, as our time, like, okay, women can be trained in military and like, like Wonder Woman, Amazon type. Don't think that type of women. Think of people that are just never trained. Back then, women were not allowed to go into the military. Uh, to, so to call them, their, their, their soldiers, as women, is saying that they are going to be exposed by their weakness. They're going to act as if they were not trained. Nahum is saying that the Ninevite soldiers will be destroyed so badly that it would seem like their entire army was untrained. Their gates will be open and the animals will just walk in. Fire will destroy their gates. Look at verse 14 and beginning of verse 15. Draw for yourself waters for the siege. Strengthen your fortification. Go into the clay and tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. Their fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. It will consume you as the locust does 
does this taunt continue? Continues. Interestingly, that God calls them to get ready. Nahum is saying that no preparation is going to get help. It's almost as if God is trying to give them advice on what you need to do in order to even have a fighting chance. But no amount of planning will stop God's wrath. God is the danger that they are running from, and they cannot actually run from him because God is hunting them. God is against them. These people attempted to hold on to something that, that will not work. The entire nation began to rely on their own strength, even though they, have, they, they are reminded that their strength doesn't matter. Nineveh looked at their natural defenses, but if other nations that are greater in their defenses were destroyed, what chance does Nineveh have against God? They thought that they can hide behind their walls, but God will destroy it. They thought they can hide behind their moat, but God would use the water from the moat to crash into those walls and destroy it. There's nothing that they ha- they can that they've done in their life that can stop God's wrath. They held on to things that cannot protect them. This is a primarily Chinese group, so I can say this. But uh, I grew up in a Chinese home with non-believers, and they have a whole bunch of Chinese traditions that makes zero sense to me. Uh, one of them is that uh, the number four. Uh, some of you guys know what that means. Number four in in Chinese is, is a pun for death. So oftentimes, Asian people like to stay away from that number because they think that if you have this number in anything, whether it's your, your doorpost or your cell phone, uh, then that must mean that you're going to die. And I have that on my cell phone. My last digit on my cell phone is number four. And I, I remember getting that, and it was freaked out all my relatives. They're like, oh, no, you're going to die. It's like, well, everybody dies. It's not like if I have another number that I'm going to live forever. But there are a whole bunch of Chinese people think that, that they want to get rid of the number four so they could prolong their life. And I always wonder, why shouldn't they just switch like one of the two? Why can't they just change either the name of death or the, num- the number four? Because if you look in, if you ever go to like a Chinese country, their, their hotel thing is ridiculous. They're like, 13 is not there because they don't want to offend Westerners, and four is not there because they don't want to offend the native people. So there's like, these Asians can't count. It's like, it's amazing. Even though we're good at math, we can't put numbers on our elevators. But these people that hold on to these traditions, these superstitious, thinking it's is they hold they think that this is what's going to protect them they think if they do certain things if they have certain things in their life that they will protect them even though they're holding on to things that are not true and this is what the ninevites are doing they're holding on to things that they have holding on to their worldview and their thinking and they assume that this is what's going to protect them and i wonder if that is some of you today what are the things that you're holding on into your life that you think that will protect you is it your college career? You think that if I have a certain amount of grades, then my life will be fine after college? Or is it your career as itself? You think if, if I ha- hold on to my career, then it's going to make me happy. I'm going to find purpose and fulfillment in it. Is it in your marriages or with your kids? Do you find yourself putting your trust in these things instead of the God of the Bible? What are the things that you think that you, that you have in your life that will protect you? The Ninevites not only had power, but they... But look at the end of verse 15. Multiply yourself like the creeping locust. Multiply yourself like the swarming locust. The Ninevites had, had the number game as well. But it did not matter. It is no good. And you picture this locust swarm as a picture of comfort and numbers. If you trust in your own strength, you will not trust in God. The Ninevites believed that they were strong enough to resist God. They trusted in their shelters. They uh, They trusted in their abilities. They trusted in their securities to sustain them. But in the end, they were all gone. 
people relying on themselves because they think that all that they have is based on their own abilities, not realizing that God is the one who gave them all of those things. Self-reliance is unbiblical and is anti-God. In the beginning of Genesis, we understand that when God made Adam and Eve, he is one who gave them life. He spoke them into existence with, and he made them from the dust. He, his breath was what gave them life. God is in control of everything. You may not be like the Ninevites in terms of going to war with God or his people, but by the way you rely on your own strength, you are fighting God's sovereign over your life. If you rely on yourself, you will show to yourself and others that you don't trust God and you don't take him seriously. In a culture that prides itself in self-reliance, it is completely countercultural for you to say that my life belongs to him, that all that I am able to do is because of God's grace and his ability working through me. You must realize that self-reliance is pride. It's attempts to make yourself king. It is easy in a church like this to teach, preach, and even give counsel about the sovereignty of God. But in our daily life, can we rely, do we really rely on God's sovereignty? And as a Christian, we must always be trusting in God in every avenue of our life. Psalm 31, verse 14. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. Psalm 84, verse 12. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. Jeremiah 17, verse 7 to 8. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the waters that extend its roots by a stream and will not Fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green, and it will not be anxious in the droughts, nor cease to yield fruit. If you want to take God seriously, you must rely not on your own abilities, but all of God's ability. You must not trust in the work of your hands, but God's work in you. So ask yourself, do I rely on my own abilities? Second, not, uh, That's the second point. Not only do we take God seriously, or don't take God seriously, if we don't take his judgment seriously, or we don't take, uh, or we keep relying on our own abilities, the last question you want to ask yourself is, do I take God's warning earnestly? Last point for us this morning, is, do I take God's warning earnestly? Verse 16, you have increased your traitors more than the stars of heaven. The creeping locust strips and flies away. Even though they are even though they have received all of these warnings, they decided to con- con- just to continue on with their lives. They increased in their traitors, meaning they they just continue on with the way of life. They just just kept with their enterprises, their businesses, and their industries, not caring at all what God has in store for them. They continue on making money and cherishing the things of the world. At the end of the verse, speaks of this. This locust coming and stripping away and flying away. This is actually in context of what God is going to do with them. Even though they build and acquire so much, in an instant, God will remove everything from them. They will lose everything. There's going to be there's going to be a thoroughness of the destruction by the locust. This verse 17. Your guardsmen are like the swarming locusts. Your marshals are like the hordes of grasshoppers settling in the stone walls. On a cold day, the sun rises and they flee, and the place where they are is not known. This verse here shows us what happens when God strikes, that they will flee like a swarm of locusts. In those days, there was this phenomenon in the 
near east where a whole bunch of grasshoppers or locusts will, 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 will gather and huddle, huddle around tree. If you were to look at it, it would be like this whole thing filled with locusts, just side by side on top of each other. It's like it's coated with all these insects. And the reason why they, they do that is because they're cold-blooded and, and they want to just kind of keep with each other. But the moment the sun comes up and their cold-blooded shells get hit by this heat, they flee. All of them would just fly away as if there's nothing there. When the sun hits them, they scatter. They move out so quickly that it seems that there's nothing, there's nothing that inhabited that area. This is what Nahum is trying to get at with, the, with this picture here. The Ninevites right now are held together and huddled in mass. And everyone from the royals, royalty all the way down to the slaves are huddled together. But when God strikes, they will flee. They will all scatter away from the city. This idea here of fleeing is shown in Isaiah 33, verse 3. At the sound of the trumpet, people flee. At the lifting up of yourself, nations disperse. Psalm 80, 68, verse 12. Kings of armies flee. They flee, and she who remains at home will divide the spoils. When the battle begins, they will... Uh, those that boast about their strength, those that highlight their own weaponry of war and brutality, will scatter like cowards. You cannot take God's warning seriously if you think you can stand up against God. During the time of the Enlightenment, there were people that, it was the era of, of rational and reason, where they tried to deny everything that was supernaturally related. They look at different literature and they try to reason, use earthly reason to explain what those things were. Example of this would be the Greek god, Zeus. You know, they talk about how, well, we don't believe in the Greek gods anymore because we know how lightning works. We know how to stop lightning. If we just have this little lightning rod, then Zeus will be useless. If he tries to strike us, we just hold this in front of him, and all the lightnings will go straight to this rod, which will render Zeus useless. And they try to do the same thing with the Bible. They try to explain rationally what, uh, what, the, what the Bible explains with all the supernatural things. They try to dismiss everything that the Bible has to claim regarding the supernatural. In the same way in our day when we think of what science is trying to do, they try to explain the world and everything about life without God. They attempt to debunk the scriptures. God's word at the end will ultimately be the victor. Science is confined to the limitations of human observation and reasoning. Right? That's why one part of the scientific method is observation. But just because you can understand the confinements does not mean that God is confined. God's warning about judgment will be fulfilled, and how he go about it will defy all human logic, reasoning, and expectations. Verse 18, your shepherds are sleeping, O king of Assyria. Your nobles are lying down. Your people are scattered on the mountains, and there is no one to regather them. In this pinnacle closing statement regarding the leaders of Nineveh, he speaks to them directly. He tells them to pay attention to what is what he is saying. Perhaps the leaders will be like the Ninevites in Jonah's time. Maybe when they hear, they will be broken and humbled, and then they will repent. But we know Nahum's warning is a warning to them, and they are not going to repent. He's trying to wake them up from their slumber. He's trying to get them to get up. But they just continue on sleeping. These nobles are found lying down. Those shepherds that should be watching over the sheep are now just simply counting sheep themselves. Nahum critiques them for their, for their negligence, for their carelessness, 
for their disregard, for their laxity and their idleness of the rulers. These kings probably read this and just thought, you know, this is a good book to just go to sleep in. You know, they just treat it like any other book. They read it as something that just helps them go to bed. They chose not to take God's warning seriously. Nahum tells them that if they continue on with what they do, their people will run to the mountains and no one will gather them back. Verse 19, there is no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable, and all who hear about you will clap their hands over you. For on whom has not your evil passed continually? After just explaining that there is futility and uselessness of all their human resources, that, that Nineveh have in their self-defenses, the prophet's final word functioned as an epithet to the Ninevites. This word relief or lessening's idea of stopping the pain. The only antidote that they need to stop the pain is actually the salvation that they're rejecting themselves. The end result of their demise is what would cause many to rejoice. Israel is going to be one of those nations that will celebrate it. He, because Israel will be comforted by knowing that God's justice is served. They will clap. And this is type of like sarcastic clap. Like, where, where's your power now? Huh? Where is your, your wall? Oh, look how great these walls are. Look at these moats. Look how great, look how great they are. It's supposed to describe this pitiful type of laugh. It's this scoff at them. That's their intent here. The enemies of Nineveh will celebrate in their destruction. And Nineveh's last word here is what God wanted the Ninevites to know. Nahum didn't look at God's, didn't hold back in God's word. He just spoke what God wanted. And you know, the Bible always tells it how it is. The Bible tells us that our sinfulness is, is revealed in Scripture. It tells us how evil we really are. We see all the graphic nature of how people treat each other in the Scriptures, and we realize that's actually how we are going to be if we try to live life without God. And you know, you as a Christian, we understand that we need to be like Nahum. We need to be able to tell people the Scripture as it is. We don't want to delude God's Word. We don't want to hide it. We don't need to cower away from it. We just need to explain to them the reality of Scripture. God's word is clear that all men are sinners and we need a savior. And that's not a message that's popular in our day because everyone in our day thinks that they are good. They think themselves as good. The Bible's message doesn't bode well with our worldview, even though on a daily basis we see how wicked people can do, can be. They, they're killing each other, they're doing all of these crazy things, but yet they fail to see that the Bible has already said, I told you so. Without me, this is how the world is going to be like. Proverbs ten twenty three tells us that doing wick, that the wicked do wickedness as if it's a sport. Man, if left to their own desires, will continue to make devices of war. And the Bible gives us the answer to the most perplexing presupposition in this world. And that presupposition is, how can mankind do so much evil if man is good? And the Bible tells us how it is, that there is no one that's good. We are all born with a sinful nature, and without God's redemptive plan, we will be left to just destroying ourselves. But worse than that, we will be judged eternally for our sins. You notice that this very last verse ends with a question. And you can change the question to ask like this. How can you expect others not to respond to you based on your action towards them? This is what Galatians would talk about. You reap what you sow. They're going to be destroyed for their sin, but it's like 
were you, what were you expecting? You made so many enemies in the world and they're going to treat you as such. When they're destroyed, everyone will celebrate. On a side note, if you compare, <coughs> excuse me, on a side note, if you compare this last verse of Nahum to the last verse of Jonah, you'll see there's a lot of similarity between the two books. Both books speak of God's judgment. Both books speaks to Nineveh. Both are around the same length in terms of word count. Both are in the minor prophets. Both end with a question. But how they both end as a whole is drastically different. When Jonah preached, the entire nation was humbled and convicted, and they repented. When Nahum preached, the entire nation ignored. And we know 15 years after this book was written that everything comes to play. Everything happens exactly the way God has said it. So let me ask you, do you take God's warnings seriously? Time and time again, the Bible speaks of those who reject God's warning. In 2 Peter, we talk, it talks about how there were people that think that a day is, you know, in God's eye, a day is the, it could be a thousand years, and that just times go by and diff- differently for the Lord. And there are people that just think, well, all those judgment of God, all those things that you talked about, they haven't appeared yet. So they think to themselves, well, I don't need to repent because God's word is not true. First Thessalonians 5.13 tells us that when Christ comes, it will be like a thief in the night. It will be a time when people least expect it. In Luke 17, verse 22 to verse 27, and he, Jesus, said to his disciples, the days will come when you will long to see of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, look there, look here. Do not go away, do not run after them. For just like the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shine to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it is will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. This is Jesus' warning that don't, don't be cavalier about his warnings. Don't think like, oh, well, it's not going to happen. I'm just going to live my life without that eternal perspective. The Bible constantly warns us against those who hear God's word and choose not to listen to it. This book closes with this reality that God has in store for him his own people and for those that reject him. God has dealt with every society corporately and he will deal with every single one individual and how they respond to God. This questions, these questions, these three questions that, we, that we've looked over, these are just guides for us to think how we can take God more seriously. <clears throat> the Ninevites did not take God's judgment seriously. They kept relying on their own abilities and their strength. They were people that heard and ignored God's warning. I hope that this does not define you. If you are a Christian today, the way that you show that you take God seriously is through a life of holiness and obedience to him. You can't call yourself someone that's following, following Christ if you do not bear fruit in your life. As a Christian, we understand things that we see in Scripture, we must obey it because he is our Lord and we are his slaves. This is the directive of the master. This is the directive of the king. And if we take his word seriously, we will obey it full-heartedly. And we'll ask God for grace in the moments that we struggle with sin. But that's the, that shows you that you take God seriously if you're willing to constantly ask him for grace to live in obedience to him. Now for you, if you are a non-Christian here today, you too need to take God's word seriously. 
Even though you may think that it's that God's judgment is in Scripture will not happen, it will happen whether you believe it or not. The Bible begins not with a plea for your attention and emotion, but it demands worship. The God that created the heaven and earth, Genesis 1, begins with that. It just speaks of God creating everything, that he owns everything, that everything belongs to him. It doesn't pander to your doubts. It doesn't cater to your reason. It isn't bothered by your unbelief. You need to take God's word seriously because God's word is true. He is after you, and unless you run to him, you will perish in his hands. God is after you. He either is going to place you, all the judgments, all the sin that you've acquired in your life, he's going to either pour that judgment onto you, or you can find the alternative by placing your faith into Jesus Christ. That You place your faith in him, that Jesus, he bore the wrath that's meant for you so that you have eternal life. He's, he, he did this because he loves you. He doesn't desire you to perish, so accept the free offer of salvation today. Again, as for us as believers, let us continue to take God's word seriously in our private times when we're reading God's word, when our Bible studies and our Sunday mornings or Friday nights or wherever we study the Bible, that we come to God's word with a humble heart and reverence for his word so that we can show that our God, he's serious, he means business. He is the God that owns all things and we need to submit to the word of the living God. Let us pray. Lord, we're thankful for this morning, for your word and your patience towards us. We are so easily, we're so easily tempted to stray and not obey your word. And Lord, we want to take your word seriously. Give us the grace to do so. And we ask for those who do not know you this morning, that you will humble their heart, that you soften their hearts of the gospel. Allow them to see their sin as a, an abomination in your eyes and that they need to take their sin seriously because you take sin seriously. Be with us this week. May you give us um, opportunity to evangelize, uh, to be a light in your world, and may, us do, may we do good deeds so that we can point people to you, Lord. Um, may we strive for holiness. May we repent and turn away, put off every sin that may be a hindrance for our sanctification. We thank you. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.